The Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. The Pink Floyd. You're going to hear them in a minute, and I don't want to prejudice you. Hear them and see them first, and we'll talk about them afterwards. I'm going to take this outside onto my porch when the sun goes down tonight, and I'm going to bang it for a minute. Every once in a while, an idea will force its way to the surface of my mind that I'm going to try to write a lyric song about. Um, but I've got no way of predicting where that's going to go in the future. Why has it all got to be so terribly loud? For me, frankly, it's too loud. I just can't bear it. I happen to have grown up in the string quartet, which is a bit softer. So uh, why has it got to be so loud? Well, I don't guess it has to be, but I mean, that's the way we like it. And uh, we didn't grow up with a string quartet, and I guess it could be one of the reasons why it is loud. I keep thinking that there is a little door and a, a little key that, that I could open and I will suddenly find a way that would make it slightly simpler for me to move those things forward and to find them. To some extent, we're trying to simplify it out a little now and um, to make the logistics of it a little more organised. So it's, I mean, it, it has been a bit sort of a mad scientist laboratory on the stage. From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other, and all points in between, the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. And now, your host, Jeremy Lunnan. Yeah, we don't know anything about that fellow there. Who is he? Where's he coming from? It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy, and I'm here with John. And, man, John it has been forever. I didn't recognize you when I walked in tonight. Well, I have changed a lot. You have changed. You shaved, I right? Shaved. Well, I, I trimmed it's, my beard. It's growing back. Yeah. I didn't, obviously. I'm, I'm going for the more of the Don Johnson as opposed to the manifesto. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going I'm going full on Unabomber okay. right now. I mean, look at it. And, yeah. it, and it's and it's it's gray. A guy at work calls me Wolverine. Logan. He calls me oh. Logan because he thinks I You should so you should take off the, the, the chin part and go with like the, <laughs> I should do it, the yeah. Gordon Fishsticks guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something to aspire to. Okay, awesome. Well, you know, I did the quick little episode last week. More than anything, you know, Meatloaf had passed away, so I wanted to kind of talk about that. But more than anything, I just wanted to get together with our audience. Uh, so I'm super excited for us to be together tonight. Looking forward to it. And and I mentioned in our last episode that you've had some things happen in your life. And it's been, it hasn't been a good last month for either of us. Uh, No, the last two months have been kind of tough. Um, I think Jeremy might have mentioned my father passed away Mm -hmm. uh, on the 19th of December. Uh, He passed away at the age of 91. Wow. So he had a a good long life Mm -hmm. and he was the youngest of six siblings and he'd survived them all. Wow. 
but uh, he yeah he passed away in December, and then uh, it was interesting because like my father passed away on a Sunday, and the Monday I had a a uh, appointment to get my booster shot for my COVID vaccine. So uh-huh. you know I'm in this headspace, but I get the I get the vaccine the the booster, and then come around uh, the beginning of the year, like the first or the second, I start having a sore throat. Mm. I take the test, and I'm positive, and I'm like. No big deal. Right. I'm boosted. I'm vaxxed. And I've uh, I've never been so sick in my life. Wow. It was, wow. Uh, you know, the CDC says that if you don't go to the hospital, you have mild symptoms. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I was at a point where I thought if I had continued being that sick for a few more days, I probably would have ended up in the hospital myself. But mm-hmm. eventually I got better. And then I had a, a good three or four days. And then my wife shared with me a stomach virus. <laughs> Oh, I shouldn't laugh. So yeah, um, it's it's been a couple, yeah. and I want to apologize to our listeners for we we really consider you like a part, an extension of us, part of our family, and we're really sorry we didn't share this stuff with her, with you earlier. But um, yeah, we just went through some it's, stuff. It's been rough, it's, and of course, um, I was uh, my family was going through COVID about the same time you guys were. It sounds like so, uh, but the good news is we're through it. And hopefully, yeah. <laughs> well, well, a lot of people have been through it more than once. So, and I, and I heard there's like if you have the vaccine and the booster, and then you get COVID, you're super immune. And uh, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The and this is not a a science show, obviously. No, but do not but, take our, but, no. but what I have heard is if you get vaccinated, you can still get it, but it won't be as bad. That's kind of what I'm hearing. That's so. kind of what I'm hearing, too. Yeah. One thing I wanted, by the way, no pressure, John, no pressure. Okay. We're going to answer mysteries of the universe on this show. Tonight. I think I this just, is the proper place. This to, is the one. I mean, this is, this is the, the album. This is the album. But but I, uh, this is, uh, let me just jump right into this. Okay. This is not a politics podcast. Okay. I, I hate politics. Well, music is political. It's got music is political. So it, it veers into that, right? So I've really thought about this. And believe it or not, it will tie exactly into this episode that we're going to talk about. So this whole Neil Young thing, right? The Neil Young, Joe Rogan thing. Again, I don't care about the politics. I don't, I don't care where you fall if you're on Rogan's side or on Neil Young's side. But, you know, it really got me thinking and and here's where here's where we'll get cosmic for a sec. We live in with with technology. John is a technology guy. He works in a technology role. He knows technology. He knows social media. We live in a world now where we have so much information at our fingertips. We have so much that we can study, that we can learn. In fact, here's an here's a tangent. I was texting John back and forth today about one of our favorite YouTube channels, Tim Pierce. Tim Pierce. Tim Pierce Amazing. guitar. And he's so friendly. I'm, he's, I, I oh, totally want to go have dinner with him. Totally. Guy. So there are so many threads that I want to pull together, but they're all part of the same uh, fur ball. <laughs> I don't know. How to, ball of yarn, whatever. But where was I at with Neil Young and Joe Rogan? So, yeah, we're at a time where we have instant access to anything we want to learn about. You can learn anything you want on YouTube. Anything. You need to fix your garage door opener, it's on YouTube. You want to learn to play a song, it's on YouTube, right? 
Tim Pierce, awesome channel. Rick Beato, we've talked about all these awesome channels that we highly recommend. So on the one hand, we've got this ability to communicate like never before. And then the dark side, see what I did there? The dark side of that technology, think about social media especially, we don't talk anymore. That's true. We don't talk anymore. I think I have my own idea. Right? Okay. So in the early days of radio, it was kind of like, um, no, I mean, it was free for all. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, what you could do if there was a competitor in your market on a certain frequency, you could go and start broadcasting on that same frequency and drown them out. Yeah. That's when it's illegal. Well, not <laughs> not until 1927. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the U.S. government got bold and they said, we own the radio waves. Mm-hmm. We own this spectrum. This, I mean, if you look at the amount of bandwidth that's given or the frequencies that are given for radio and television, it's microscopic. Oh, yeah. The, the majority of the bandwidth or the frequencies that are out there are for military purposes. Yep, the government. Gu- guiding bombs and all this kind of stuff. Yep. But anyway, the U.S. government said – basically put these rules out and they said that the airwaves are for the the good of the people kind of in right interest and necessity of the people Mm -hmm. meaning that if you put something on radio it had to have some kind of redeeming social value to it right and along with that was something called the fairness the fairness doctrine was a big deal so the fairness doctrine was basically so at the time, in order for your, your message to be heard, you had to have a radio station. It had to be licensed. You had to follow these guidelines. And one of those was the Fairness Doctrine. So the Fairness Doctrine said, because you you are have to work, you have to be of public good, you have to show both sides of every issue. Equal time. Equal yep. time. Yep. So, you know, uh, a television station couldn't broadcast just if they, um, if they were interested in Republican candidates. They couldn't just... Um, devote time to Republican. They had to give a 50-50 break on every single candidate. So there was, a, there was all these laws that were basically built in to have this kind of more, um, I guess, democratic and more evenness in terms right. of reporting and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But Reagan kind of shot that in the butt. And mm-hmm. you have Fox News. Deregulated. You have Fox News and you have MSNBC. You have Newsmax. And they don't have to Deal with the fairness doctrine. Well, because they they're not they're not over the air. Right. Cable changed all that. Right. right. Cable changed all that. So they're they're right. not they don't have to preside present two sides of every story. Right. And I think and also with social media, you don't have to have a radio and cable. You don't have to have radio anymore. You don't have to have band. You don't have to have bandwidth and frequency to, to have your message out there. Anyone can have a message. So we're in the state where everyone has the ability to voice their opinion and their opinion doesn't have to be fact checked right opinions never do opinions don't that's and and that's kind of where i was going when you decide okay cuz cuz i'm completely tracking with you on the 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 airwaves are belong to the public like you said newspapers never had a fairness doctrine right because I own the printing press. I print it. I'm not using this air that belongs to everyone over the air. So a newspaper would not have to have equal time, but the, where a radio or TV would have to have. But there equal was time. legislation before Reagan that industries had to be separate. You couldn't own a newspaper 
and exactly. a radio station and a television station. Exactly. You had to be very separate. And with the breakdown of this, you have news organizations that are owning lots of individual local news stations. They're owning newspapers. They're owning everything. Co- everything. And they have a certain point of view that they want to put forward. Exactly. That they don't have to have any kind of fairness or other side of the coin, that kind of thing. And and I think also it's, it's maybe a little bit, uh, what's the word? Um conspiracy. Mm -hmm. So what happens with social media, at least I see it on YouTube and I see it on Facebook and those two things communicate with each other, right? Which is very, very crazy. Kind of creepy. So what I, what happens is there, these algorithms are looking for engagement. So they see, if you see like a teaser on a video about something political, they're going to give you more of that, the more you click on it. So what happens is your feed becomes a wall of these things that are reinforcing your beliefs. It's curating based on your opinion, right? And that's exactly where I'm going, John. That's exactly where I'm going because follow the science, right? We hear that all the time. Follow the science. We're at a place where depending on our politics, if I'm extreme left, you're extreme right, or the opposite, we are both getting different versions of our truth, right? Everything that's fed to me aligns with my politics and and it's a it's a scary brave new world right because and here's here's the point i was trying to make with with neil young and joe rogan is neil's point is he's spreading misinformation and i don't want to be affiliated with that okay well joe's point is hey there's two episodes in question where he talked to two doctors one of them invented the mrna Another one, another expert, they tend to have differing opinions from what the CDC is currently saying, right? Which is, it's, let's be honest, it's morphed over the last year and a half. It has really morphed. So Rogan's, Rogan's point was, I'm not a doctor. I talk to everyone and he does. And I guess if I was going to come down on anyone's side, my, my, my only criticism, well, that's a big criticism of Neil Young is it, it's like, all you got to do is listen to Joe Rogan for a week. And for whatever reason, he's been pigeonholed as this alt-right guy, and he absolutely is not. You can watch one day, and he's talking to Ted Nugent, and then you watch another day, and it's Russell Brand or whoever it is. He is literally all over the spectrum. Political, entertainment, sports. In my mind, Joe Rogan is exactly what we need right now. Okay. Because he has conversations with anyone about anyone. He drops the F-bomb. You know, right-wingers probably hate him. Left-wingers probably hate him. So he's probably doing something right, right? And so I guess my only beef with Neil Young is that here's a free speech guy. Keep on rocking in the free world, right? This whole hippie mentality, anti-establishment and now he's like, he's like coming out supporting the establishment and big pharma. And it's like, we're like in a, we're like in a reverse universe. It is weird. It's weird. And so my whole point is we need to have more conversations, especially when we disagree with each other. One of the best videos I've seen on YouTube is Russell Brand. So you got Russell Brand way left, way left, Ben Shapiro. Way, Way right. right yeah. They sit down for 40 minutes 
There's no yelling. There's no insults. There's no bah, bah, bah. That's exactly what we need. Yeah. And that's what I appreciate about a Joe Rogan, about a Russell Brand, is we need more conversations, not less. So uh, another take I have on Joe Rogan is Joe Rogan is a comedian. Yeah. He is knowledgeable in MMA. Yes. He's totally. knowledgeable about the, well, he's not knowledgeable about being a comedian, a, a bigger act. Mm-hmm. There's some things that are in his wheelhouse that I, I, I th- take him as an expert for. Right. Very few. But I don't know if his audience understands that is that he's a comedian because there's not that in his, his content isn't curated. I guess if that's the word. Well, yeah, but that's what's wonderful about free speech. Yeah. You know, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, if you got someone, you know, if I had a podcast where I'm showing people how to make bombs, you yeah. know, I understand that, right? But uh, talking about COVID, there, there, there are, there are people all over and COVID's the first virus we've had that has, that's political, right? right. It's the first, first political virus that I can recall. But for whatever reason, it's scary when we say, I don't, I won't even, we can't even hear that. Whatever you're saying, you're not allowed to say it. It's misinformation. Well, it's really easy to label something misinformation if you happen to disagree with it, you know? And I'm like, and I think, I mean, cancel culture has its place, I think, for certain, but you have Dave Chappelle. Yeah. And in my opinion, he's probably the, the most, the best comedian in 30 years. He's hilarious. I mean, not only hilarious, but his his comedy is so deep. Right. And he got uh, in trouble with the trans community. Right. Because he made a joke about trans people. And uh, he's on, he, his special was on Netflix. And a whole bunch of uh, the employees of Netflix had a walkout. And Netflix had to come down and say, we're going to, keep him on the channel we're going to keep him on our streaming service and it's it's one of those things of like you know the social media empowers us but i think it over empowers well no and that's a very good point and i think that's one of the what did what did uncle what is his name uncle ben on spider-man you know with great power comes great responsibility right not uncle ben's rice (laughs) uncle ben spider-man's uncle right but, but that's true. You know, there, there's, there's so much good about social media, but there's so much. And the, you mentioned it. This curated news feed is one of the strangest, most dangerous things. And some of our younger listeners, if anybody's like young, I don't think mm-hmm. so. But there was a time when YouTube first came out, it was random. It was literally, oh. you would open up your, your feed, whatever, and it was random stuff. And then if you did a search, you'd have Everything in your feed on the column would be that that thing you're searching for. Yeah. Now nowadays, you do a search, you'll get one or two things, and everything else, and everything is, is aiming you back to that political conversation that yep. you've already had. It's, yep. it's it's reinforcing that um, that connection you have with your ideals, you know. Yeah. And I think it's, I don't think it's good for America. I don't. Though. I don't think so either. I mean, but. I don't want to make the leap to say we need to regulate things more because first of all, who, who's, who's the, who's the saint that can regulate and decide that's okay. That's not okay. 
Trump, you can't be on Twitter. Taliban, you can. I mean, who's the guy that makes that call? Because, yeah, it's it's kind of scary. My point is we need to talk more, not less, especially with people that we disagree with. I, I think that's a, a wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, particularly with Joe Rogan, I hope people aren't, like, quoting him. I mean – right. Well, I don't. I mean, I, if they are, they're dumb, right? Yeah. But and that's the problem: is do we have to account for stupid people? Yeah, we do. <laughs> How much? We do. How much do we? Everywhere we compensate for dumb people. Well, you know that's why there's yeah. no slides. We yeah, exactly. There's no slides there's no anymore. Swings. There's no cool swings there's, anymore. You can't run on the. Yeah. My, my kids are 20 years old, but they I remember that can't play dodgeball. You can't you couldn't run on the playground. They can't throw snowballs. <sighs> it's just. Now I'm all fired up, John. Oh, me too. Okay, I'm really so no up. more politics. No okay. More politics. Other than talk more, not less. Talk more. And, and I, talk I, to people you disagree with. I would say it's much harder to criticize somebody face-to-face than it is over a tweet. Oh, that's the oh. other big thing. That's a, such an important point because social media encourages the worst in yes. us. Because I could say things to you. I told you the guy on YouTube that told me I had such a punchable face, right? People will say things on their keyboard that they would never say in person. Right. That's a whole other thing. And I find myself like on social media making really snarky comments that I- Oh, I'm the worst. And I- Do you go in and delete them later? uh, No, I I read them and I go, is this really that important? And so about 99% (laughs) of the time, I'll write something that I really feel passionate about- And I just go delete. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that's what social media should have is like, a do bu- you really want to do you really want to, <laughs> yeah, all totally. of your friends and family are going to know you yeah. have this comment. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable with them? Totally. Your, your, your nephew doesn't like you because you do yes. this. No. Do you want and, him to like you less? And, and you're exactly right. And I've seen that you've seen that meme, right? What about me? I mean, social media, just for the memes alone, yeah. it's worth it, right? I'm, I'm glad the internet was invented just for memes, but there's there's the one that says <laughs> they show the pie chart and it's like just a teeny sliver or maybe there isn't even a sliver it points to the you know people whose opinion will be changed based on your social media post you know it's like zero <laughs> no one no one no one's going to change their opinion so, they're just there's like they're like uh, junkyard dogs chained up opposite of each other totally you totally. know, if you let them go, they probably not going to attack and, each and other. And I, you know, I'm guilty of being snarky. And then most of the time I go back and delete it because I, I don't want to be that person. Uh, but yeah. I do it. And and in real life, in person, I would never think of saying. So it it can bring out the worst. I'm going to do one more political thing. If okay, that's okay, let's do it. I'm ready. I think privacy is the one thing the Internet needs. I'm with you. I, th- I mean, the the EU's put um, they have a new standard. Like, if you go to a European website, they're gonna they ask you about cookies. Meaning, so every time you go to a website, you can see. I, mean, I have a plugin that I can see, but your data is being stolen. They're seeing what pages you are, yeah. you're clicking on. They're seeing, and you will. I mean, if I, if the, the weirdest thing is if I go and look at something on Guitar Center, mm-hmm. I'm gonna look at a web page that has nothing to do with Guitar Center, and the stuff I'm looking for is there. And I, I personally think that we need to have some kind of measure of privacy online. I'm with you on and, that. And we can't be tracked. We can't be cataloged. Right. You know, because that, that reinf- I mean, because Facebook and Google are talking to each other. It keeps reinforcing that engagement, which means 
what is what's the word I'm thinking of? It's when people are polarized, um, militancy almost. Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's fueling that. And and here's okay. Here's my, here's my last political point. I agree with you 100. percent You take the most radical right, the most radical left. I mean, maybe maybe radical is not the right word, but but you take someone who's very right, you take someone very left, and they agree on about ninety percent. Right. And yet, what? And here's why politics sucks, and here's why politicians suck. They have a divide and conquer approach. Right. Let's drive a wedge. I don't care where you fall on the political spectrum. You want good schools. You want low crime, low taxes. You want low taxes. You want a good economy. You those want- are those are common things everyone wants. The the ninety percent, ninety five percent of people want the same things. But it comes down to you know then then you get down to the nuances. Okay, how do we get there, right? But if you watch the media, it's like we're so divided and we're so. I think that's bullcrap. And I love the quote from. Rob Schneider, he says, the be- what, what did he say? He says, the best, he says, here's what I'm doing. I can't remember the quote, but he said, the best thing you can do is have a barbecue with your neighbor. That's the best thing you can do, man. And just, and, and you get politics involved and then it just, people get their hackles up. They get defensive. They stop talking. I'm going to take my marbles and go home because I don't like what you're saying. So yeah, and then you get reinforced totally, and then so, everything you're getting fed is get reinforcing that. that. Yeah. yeah. So well, that would got political. Yeah. Sorry. 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 Guys. Okay, but here it's all about music, right? Okay. <laughs> like so nothing but the it's music. all about the music. Okay. So when we come back, we are going to talk about this hugely important album, it's "Dark Side of the Moon," and we'll dig into that when we come back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You like rocking. We like talking. Better because it works two ways. It's the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast with Jeremy and John. And we, okay, we won't, we won't go down those uh, political rabbit holes. Well, I can't promise that. No, we can't promise anything. Because we are answering the questions of the universe tonight. And this, this is the, this is the, this is the album to do it on. So I want to, we mentioned Tim Pierce earlier. Guys, you got to check out if you're a, a, a fan of guitar music at all. You, he, I love that guy. He's, he's and he plays very tasty stuff and just a not. You can tell he's just a nice guy. And he's one of those guys where you can see that he has an absolute mastery of that instrument. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's there's a few people on the earth that do that like and, that. And he's a conversationalist. He's yeah. a guy that can talk and engage you i like to think of myself as tim pierce without the talent that's that's kind of what i like (laughs) so but he's no seriously he's he's very good so i would highly recommend you check him out and he's played on 
when I first texted you, I was watching the little, and you've seen it, the video about the Iris, the, Iris, the Goo Goo Doll song. And, and that's an excellent video just to help you understand the process of production. And he sits down with Rob Cavallo. Is that the guy's name? Yep. The, the guy that produced that. That album, which was it's, a it's huge... not just it's not just some guy Rob Cavallo. No, you, no, he's produced. Yeah, he's the records that he's produced have sold 160 million copies. <sighs> he is the most the highest selling producer of all time. Wow. Yeah. So uh, check out the the video on the song Iris. Of course, Tim played on Iris. He played mandolin and then plays a slide solo, and then he's wound up working with Rob on lots of stuff since then, but. The reason I'm talking about that is that made me just that one video just made me think of, of so many important points in terms of album production. And I think as listeners, you know, you think of a, a, a pedestrian listener, you know, someone who's maybe not a musician. They just like listening to music. And so, so much of what we hear. Okay. We, we, we grow up hearing songs on you know now maybe it's you know you download them and you play them. but when we were kids it was you listen to the record you listen to a cassette you heard it on the radio and then you go see them live and i can remember kind of always being a little disappointed because you're like oh that doesn't sound as good as right on the cd right right and so so much of what makes a great album a great album, it's more than the four guys up there playing on the stage. There's so much else going on. Yeah, it's uh, that's basically the Beatles came up with that idea was, you know, back in the day, you would get a band together, mm -hmm. you'd go record an album, you mm -hmm. would play songs as a band front to back in one take usually, no overdubs, the, that was your song. The first Sabbath album was basically recorded that way. Yeah. And then the Beatles said, uh, "We got some time. We're gonna, we're gonna buy a studio. They bought Abbey Road, which is the studio that Dark Side of the Moon recorded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so they just they just decided to explore the studio explore, space. Explore the space. Yeah. So yeah. Th I think that. And then the Be uh, the Beach Boys obviously kind of trumped them on that. Mm. But mm. I think Dark Side of the Moon." It's probably one of the best studio albums I, ever. I I agree. I agree. And one of my notes here is, you know, so much of what makes Dark Side interesting is is non-music stuff. And that was avant-garde at the time. Oh, yeah. And I mean, just the whole, you know, it opens with the, the heartbeat, right? Boom, 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 boom. And and then you hear the voices. They just the whole thing. Avant garde is a perfect word. Perfect word for it because it was just, it was just so different from anything else that had come out. And and let me let me tell you about my love hate relationship with Pink Floyd because okay, you know from the time that that I my first real blip of Pink Floyd, you know I was just a normal kid. So in like seventy nine, when did the wall come out 79 right yeah. so i'm in seventh grade and we hear this song the wall we don't need you know that was kind of my first exposure not realizing that you know i didn't know anything about that was actually my first exposure too i remember yeah. going to elementary school mm -hmm. and kids were singing we don't need no education i'm like what oh yeah we do we really, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we do. seriously do that's why we come to school why, yeah. why? <laughs> 
what are you kids talking about? And yeah. then I heard the song on the radio, but it was like, why are these children singing this song? Yeah. yeah. I think my arc is typical of what music was, right? Not saying Pink Floyd was the absolute first, because you mentioned the Beatles. They were experimental and all of that. But music was kind of throwaway. You know, you'd go dance by the jukebox, you know, a two-minute, five-second song. You know, that's what music was. It was happy, happy. In the 60s, that changed a little, right? The 60s were all of a sudden music became, it wasn't just background noise. It just, it became a, you mentioned politics. Politics came into it. Came into it. Uh, it became a, a defining force of culture, right? So it wasn't just quick little ditties that you danced to. So it was changing. And so here's where my problem, problem's not the word, but Pink Floyd, I always, always, always loved David Gilmore. I always Fantastic. loved his playing, always. But they were always so dang depressing. I would agree. I was like, man... Can you, is there a happy Pink Floyd song? No, I would okay. say no. So, and that was my beef, you know, and Roger Waters was always so cranky, cranky. And, you know, he spit on people and L at, and the wall tour and I, all these terrible things about Roger Waters, but you know, grimy guts, as they called him. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, they fired, they, you know, that Richard Wright wasn't a member of Pink Floyd when they toured for, he was fired. Wow. Roger Roger fired Richard, but Richard said, I want to play on the tour. So he was basically playing as a sideman on that tour. You know, so he was the driving he, force. He was a driving force, yeah. And so I I, I guess, and maybe it's because I'm getting older, I pay more attention, I've done a little more research, watch more interviews. He was just coming from a different place. And so when you talk about him, I'm not condoning spitting on your fans, right? But his whole thing was, we're talking about something here that's serious, right? We want you to get something out of this. This is not just, hey, let's all get high and listen to the music. He was like, pay attention. You know, it's your typical tortured artist, right? He wants people to understand his art. And when they didn't, to them, it was... Happy, happy rock and roll. We're going to a rock and roll show. Woo! It pissed him off, right? And I think that frustrated him because he's a he's a really smart guy. See, that's that's the, the there's like a fine line between being artistically creative and making a career out of it. I mean, I think if you know if Roger Waters was young today, mm -hmm. I don't think he'd be in a band. Uh, you're probably right. He'd probably do all the stuff himself or hire musicians to play parts, and he'd release his own content completely under his control. Yep. But you have, you know, David Gilmore in the band, one of the greatest rock guitarists of ever. You have, you know, uh, the rest of the band too. But you have – you're not dealing with people you can tell them what to do. You're dealing with people that have opinions and and, and, th and that – I think that makes for a stronger Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. But if you're one, someone that wants to have, you have a singular vision, you don't really want to share that vision Absolutely. with other people. And, and there are tons of John Fogarty. I mean, there's oh, tons John of Fogarty. people just like that, that they were the, they were the guy. And yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's funny. I was just watching an interview today. One of the parts they talk about, I, I talked about, sorry, I'm going jumping all over the place. But one of the things I talked about was how so much of the sounds aren't really music, right? It's right. the sound effects. 
they had gotten this new piece of technology, a sequencer, right, that they could use. And so this is like probably the very first sequencer. I can't remember what the model was, right? But, you know, they put in the little, a little eight note figure. An EMS VCS3. There you go. The EMS VCS3. They put in a little eight note figure, crank up the tempo. That's how you get the on the run, right? And it's, it's literally... And and there's a funny little clip in the interview I saw today is David says, well, yeah, we got this. And British guys, when they get, they all look like distinguished grandfathers now, you know, as they talk, you know, but, but David's talking about how he had programmed in this little eight note figure and, you know, they, they ramp up the speed to get that. And uh, <laughs> Roger comes in and says, no, that's not right. Those, we got to change those notes. And And David's like, you know, kind of put out, he's like, oh, who are you, man? They're just speeding it up. And uh, Roger said, no, those aren't, those, that's aren't the right notes. Right. And so Roger goes in and programs in eight different notes, speeds them up. And then I think David's words were, and frustratingly enough, his did sound a lot better than mine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, so there's this, this acknowledgement that he was right, but you sense the frustration there's a little bit of one-upsmanship. Totally. And and Roger, he was the driving force. I mean, this whole, this album, Wish You Were Here, Animals, The Wall, those were Roger Waters. He wrote pretty much everything. I mean, I'm lyrically, you know, content-wise, of, you know, of all three, he's probably, he plays bass, right? I don't know what else he plays. He plays acoustic on some things, but... It's it's interesting. David Gilmore does a lot. Richard Wright does a lot in terms of all the other instrumentation. But it was really Roger Waters' vision that they were doing. And and to him, he will tell you, Dark Side of the Moon broke up Pink Floyd. And they had how many albums after that? Like four albums after right. that? I mean, with Roger, Animals, Wish You Were Here, The Wall. Three, the final cut wasn't. So they had three huge albums after after that and yet he thinks that's what broke us up so it's an interesting so thing. i have a question for you if dark side of the moon came out today you think it would uh, do anything as it sounds today as, a, as an if album it just came out that's a very good question it would get no radio play it would well see there that's a very good point it probably wouldn't do anything but it's hard to say that because so much of what that's influenced so much of what has happened today. If that had never happened, it's one of those, if you go back in time and try and change time, you know, it's one of those things. What would, what would the rest of the music landscape be like if there'd never been a dark side? And would that have an impact on its ability to have an impact if it did come out today? I don't know if that even made sense, what I was trying to say there. So you're a radio exec, right? A band comes with you, and they want to they want to record an album. They want a million bucks, right? Yeah. A million bucks. It's... You got shareholders looking at you, and the first three tracks are nothing but uh, a bunch of samples and oh, noise. Yeah, no, no way, no way. I mean, when you put it that way, there's no way this album could be produced today. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it, is it could not happen today. Yeah, because. I think I mentioned this on another one. I did. I talked about uh, when I saw Malcolm Gladwell talk about, he talked about the Eagles and he talked about Fleetwood Mac. And he talked about how 
Fleetwood Mac, the big album, the big 1975 Fleetwood Mac album with Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, that was their 13th album. That was the first one with the line, the new lineup, though. Yes. But the first one that was really hugely popular. And his point was, today, no record company would give a band 13 albums to find their groove. Right. No way. They want to... The way that it goes now is they have to have a big social media following. Yeah. I can't remember Justin Bieber on the radio until like a year ago. Mm. And how big he is. I just I could not name a song he was mm. on. I mean I still can't. I don't but but yeah, he and he's the he's that's more often than not the way it happens is people kind of create their own cre- career on social media and and the, it's got to be frustrating for musicians. And and I'll use Neil Young as an example, right? They make so little money off the streams. from streaming. All- and yet they're kind of forced to do it because no one will buy albums. So it's like if you want to if if you want to make it, you got to you got to sell concert. That's why concert tickets cost 100 bucks instead of 14, 200 bucks. Or 200 bucks, right? Because you make so little money from streaming, and yet that's the model. That's the way you music is done today. And, and nowadays, the record—if you—if you get a record contract, they own everything. So oh. it used to be that if you would you get an advance for a record and you get an advance for the tour. So during the tour, you would sell merch. That's your property. Yep. And those all those kind of things were your own revenue streams that weren't weren't included in the contract. But now. The record company owns everything you do. Mm. So if you sell a T-shirt with your face on it from your web store, you got to owe the record company. So it's it's completely changed. Yeah. Uh, so one little fact about records getting made, right? Mm-hmm. So I have the the list of forty million copies or more so of albums sold. Okay. So I can name some of them. Let's see if you can go number one. Okay. Number one. Number one. Is that Thriller? Yep. Okay. So seventy million. Okay, so uh, I know Dark Side of the Moon is around 40 or 50, isn't it? Dark Side of the Moon is, where is Dark Side of the Moon? It is one, two, three, four, five, six on the chart, and it's at 44 million. Okay, does this have greatest hits albums on it? Nope. Okay, so no greatest hits albums. Uh, Back in Black, maybe on there. Yes, number two. Okay. With 50 million. Wow. Okay. So next is Whitney Houston with the Bodyguard soundtrack with 45. Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. Holy cow. I did not know it was that high. Top four albums being sold. So he's outsold Pink Floyd. Wow. Wow. So but one thing that comes out of this list is there's no new artists on it. So Michael Jackson, Rudy Stiller in 82. ACDC, Back in Black in 80. Whitney Houston, 92. So... The majority of them are albums from the 70s. Mm. You have Bad Out of Hell, Eagles Greatest Hits, sorry. Oh, so there is a Greatest Hits, because I was going to say, no, Eagles oh, Greatest Hits has got to be up yeah, there. Yeah, Eagles greatest, greatest Hits, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Hotel California, Saturday Night Fever, Rumors from Cleveland okay. Mac, and the, and the last one is uh, Shania Twain's album from 97. Wow. So 90, is that the newest one on there? That's 97. The newest, 97. Okay. So... What happened to around 97, by the way? Wasn't that when Napster was all going down? That was when Napster was going down, and country players didn't understand what Napster was about the album. But you know what? That's very telling, because... 
Pete Townsend a year ago, he basically said, uh, why should we put out another album? We can't make money putting out an album. Why? Why? Why should we? I mean, I, it's great that people want us are saying they want us to put out an album, but we can't make money. They do not make money. There was I, I heard a podcast the other day was talking about numbers in terms of plays on Spotify. Mm -hmm. And it was just astounding that bands that you think would do well do not do well. Mm. Like you compare Justin Bieber to Van Halen. Right. Not even close. M m meaning what? Justin Bieber sells way, way more. Way more. Yeah. But, or, or plays me more. Right. But right. you have to understand that albums were commodities. Mm -hmm. So if you're a, you're a baker, you make a dozen donuts, you sell a dozen donuts, that's mm -hmm. your product, a dozen. So with an artist, the, the album was the product. Right. They sign a contract to produce this product that can be duplicated and sold. So one of the th cool things about an album, I guess people can remember, is there's two sides to them. And you put on the side of the album, you put the record on, and you let it play till the end of the – so it got to the end of the side one, you flipped it over. Right. It was a full listening experience that does not exist anymore. No. People don't yeah, – well, no one buys albums. Nobody buys – nobody's listened to anything front to back. Right. Right. And so and, – And cassettes were kind of the same thing as an yeah, album too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And here's another victim of the changing market too. And cassettes, right? So I'm, hold, I'm holding up the actual physical LP. One of the uh, 70 million. Or dark whatever. side of the moon. 44 million. Uh, on the charts for like 749 weeks from 73 to 88 or something. Some some ridiculous amount not, of time. I'm not going to fact check that because yeah, we are a it's, podcast. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, that's right. We don't need to. Okay, so my point was: remember when you'd buy a record? Did you buy mostly records or cassettes? Uh, I'm a I'm a quite a bit younger than you. Yeah, yeah, not no. that much younger. I was, How, are you 52? I'm 52. Yeah, 52. So we I bought mostly cassettes. Okay, so I'm 54. So we're not that yeah. far apart. But the experience for most of us was: you'd go and you buy the album. It's gatefold. You could open it up. I'm opening it up, right? I'm showing John. The, the lyrics are in here. There's graphics. It opens up like a book. It opens like a book. It's you'd sit you'd sit on your bed, either with your headphones on or you're listening to your record player, and you'd look at this and you'd read the lyrics and you'd pull out the little sleeve in the middle. And there's usually this one doesn't have anything, but there's usually some more stuff there. You used the word. It was an experience, right? It was an experience. Versus just downloading a song or streaming a song and listening to it. And and something else that was great about albums at the time was they're considered a complete work of art. Yeah. So the, the recording itself was a work of art. The album cover was a work of art. And, you know, Dark Side of the Moon's got one of the best album covers oh, of all time, you know? Yeah, totally. But that was that was the thing was that you you look for records visually. Did you ever buy an album just based on how it looked? I think I did. I did. Yeah. I never didn't know a thing about it. In 1982, I bought Triumph Allied Forces just because it had this cool flying V guitar that looked like a sword on the front. Mm. That's got to be cool. <laughs> totally. To, based totally on the album cover. So, Only reason I bought so it. So do you remember Hastings? Oh, yeah. So in the Western part of the United States, I think there was there's a media company called Hastings. They would rent videos and the stores were about as big as a grocery store. They're huge. Yeah. 
and they had and they'd have racks upon racks upon racks of albums and posters and mm-hmm. and you know all that kind of stuff. And you go in there and you look around and they had whole bunches of books, and they went belly up ten years yep. ago, fifteen years ago. Yep. And so that experience of physically touching media is gone. Yep. And you know, I look back on that and that makes me sad, right? But do, do you lament? I, I don't know. That's one of those things that, that for us, change is hard, right? If we're used to buying the records and all of that cool stuff to our kids that weren't, they're like, what's the big deal? I just listen to it on my phone, you know? Yeah. So, so it's, it, it is a, it is a, a, a different thing. Yeah. It is a different thing. So let's, let's talk about this album. 1970. And here, this was interesting. They had already written. They had already performed this live several times before they recorded it. They had they'd put together songs. They'd go out and play it, you know, like on their their metal tour. You know, metal I think came out in seventy one. So like in seventy two, they're actually already performing these songs. They had been before they went in and recorded it at the end of seventy two. They were started like the fall of seventy two and ended, you know, like in the. And there was even a two-month break in there during the recording. But it was originally, they were going to call the album Dark Side of the Moon. Then there was a, this other band, a blues band called Medicine Head, that they found out was releasing an album called Dark Side of the Moon. Oh. So then they said, okay, we're going to call it Eclipse. Okay, we'll call it Eclipse. But then this album was released and went nowhere, was a big flop. And so hey, let's just call it Dark Side of the Moon. So then they called it Dark Side of the Moon again. And so they get together. Start recording it. Much of the much of it was already recorded, or already been performed. They'd been working on the songs, and this is where an example of Roger Waters being a genius, right? The money part, the you know, the sound effects, the coins, the cash register, the paper tearing, all of that. He recorded those. His wife had a a little uh, ceramic shop. She's he he had she had a little pottery shop where she did her pottery or shop I don't know if that's the right word a little room a she shed right where she made pottery he had his little studio where he did his things and she had these big metal bowls that she would mix the the stuff in and he thought oh so he records throwing change in there rip all these things they put together and you've talked about this before songs in seven, eight, right? They can't, they've got to get it to sync to seven, eight time. Cause I used to always, I, I had to think about this cause they talk about running a loop out around a microphone stand. Right. So the, so if you think about in the studio, they had reel to reel recorders mm-hmm. with tape. Right. And what they would, they, the reels generally sat flat on mm-hmm. a table. So what they would do is they would get a microphone stand, and back then they were none of them were black; they were all chrome. Right. So you had this solid chrome slick, yeah. slick. So they would uh, take the tape off from the machine, wrap it around this chrome post, basically, and feed it back into the machine to make this loop. Right. And so, and and, and by making a loop, what that means is because I remember doing this. You might not be old oh, enough I to do, do this. It. Do you remember actually cutting tape? Yes. Yeah. So ERP, right? Erase, record, play. ERP. Those are the heads on a reel-to-reel. And you'd always make your little, you take a little wax 
a little crayon, pencil, a crayon. Those little things. You'd mark it. You'd mark it on the over you, the playhead. You would jog it back and forth. You'd jog it back and forth. Group, find exactly where you want. You'd pull the tape out, and you have those little splicing blocks. It's a little aluminum block with different angles cut. So in. you could do, like a miter box. Like a miter. It's box. a miniature miter box for your quarter inch tape or half inch tape. Stick. I'm so glad you know what we're talking about because most people don't. But but we were old school enough that we actually learned how to do it that way. And so they would physically cut the tape. So think about all these different effects. We've got the coins, tear, register. There's like four or five different things. But here's where the challenge comes is you've got to have seven. Well, maybe not seven. You've got to have exactly the same length of each splice because it's got to be, it's got to keep the same rhythm. And so they have to have that loop just because I was thought, well, why did they need to loop it? Why couldn't they just have that on a reel? Well, they'd have to have a whole reel full of it to get it long enough. So instead, you make a 30-second loop or whatever made up of seven edits or how many times you had to splice it together and just run it around that little loop. But just the – and here's the thing. He's like 28 years old at this time. And they're thinking of all this crazy stuff. They were all very smart. And, and the thing about that kind of recording is it's very destructive. You cannot undo. No. <laughs> so you're heading in a direction. So one of the things, you know, I'm a creative person, that makes an artist is their ability to edit. You're, you're not thinking outside the box. You're thinking within the box, basically. Yeah. So you have, you know. Well, say, what do you mean? To edit meaning to leave stuff out? Is that what you say when you mean, mean your ability edit to edit? means to delete, not include everything. Okay. So they had – edit means basically you are making a choice. Right. So when, when they're laying this stuff down, these tape loops, they like, this is going to be it because you can't – Because you physically have cut out you physically chunks. Cut, you, can't, you can't go back. Right. So – and also if – if that studio is used again the next day for something else, I'm not sure if they had a book forever. <laughs> someone's going to record over it. <laughs> how, someone's going to record it. How are you going to get? How are you going to make this? So you had a certain amount of time. You had to get it perfect. Mm. And if that wasn't perfect, you yeah, had to do another day. But it basically, it was like you really had to concentrate on getting it right. There was right. no undos. Yeah, and here's another thing that was a big. You know, they were they were using. At the time, state of the art. This is Abbey Road. 16 track. So before, all they'd had was four or maybe eight. Maybe they had eight on metal. But now all of a sudden, that opens up all kinds of things you can do. You've got 16 tracks. And now with digital, I mean, you, there's no, no end to. I've, I've seen there's productions no of 96 Yeah, tracks. there's no end. You know. Plus, you know, with, with tape, there's an actual reduction in quality every time you are dubbing it over to another piece of tape every generation you it degrades a little bit yes even even running it through the machine multiple times totally absolutely there's a whole process when they go back to these masters you know like peter jackson's beatles videos that he's making right now there's a whole process where they have to bake tape uh uh, film you're talking about bake you're talking about a physical process where you take and bake and you heat it up you heat it up and that I don't un- exactly understand how that, but but yeah. So you're dealing with a physical medium. It's not digital. It's not binary. It's not you know with digital you can manipulate it however you want. You can undo it many times as you yeah. want to. Yeah, yeah. But there we're still in the analog world here, and 
all of this stuff, and I, that's an excellent point that it's you can't undo it, right? No. If, if you screw up, you you do it again. Yeah. So, and a lot of times that was kind of cool because if you listen to a lot of older recordings, you can hear errors in them. Oh yeah. The errors that would not, I mean, I think I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but some of the older recordings, you could tell that this is being done the best that they can do. Yeah. You know, they would, you know, you hear these producers like Phil Spector, that do like, you know, several hundred takes of a song, (laughs) you know, insanity, but still it's like you got to a point with, with analog where you had to make hard choices all the time. Yeah. And a lot of it was your limitations of tracks too. You run out. Well, we can't do that. Yeah. We can't do We don't have a track to do that. So, So, and Alan Parsons, right? Yeah. So Alan Parsons was an engineer at Abbey road. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about engineers. We're talking about engineers. Like, so, uh, Tape machines have to have – they have to be biased. They have to be calibrated just correctly because mm-hmm. if you take a tape and let's say it's it's running like 1% faster than it should and you take it to another studio to put another track on it, all the instruments are going to be out of tune. So you had to have these guys that were getting in there with screwdrivers and soldering irons and you know making very minor tweaks on, on vector scopes or on um, oscilloscopes trying to get this stuff. So that's where Alan Parsons started. He was – uh, an engineer at Abbey Road Studio. 18 years old when he helped the Beatles. Right. When he was working. So so by this time, by 73, he's probably 23, something like that. I, I, I laugh when you're talking about that. I bought about two years ago, brand new. A lady had gotten brand new an Audio-Technica turntable. Nice turntable. I think she paid like 225 bucks. Brand new. Still in the box. I lowballed her. I said... She was asking like 150 And I said, I don't mean to lowball you, but I got $80 and I'd buy this right now. I'll come drive over and buy it right now. And I didn't think she said, okay. So I got this brand new Audio-Technica turntable. It plays way too fast. I put it on and it was like, and I don't mean, I don't mean just to, I mean, I'm kind of anal about that. So maybe other people wouldn't, but I put it and it's like, this is way too fast. There's an app. Again, I went to YouTube, right? But there's an app you can get that that you you actually lay your phone down on the turntable, and it tells you how many RPMs. That's I haven't seen that. That sounds so cool. so. And even if you get it to thirty four, you know it's thirty three and a third, right? And and they say even you get it to thirty five, you're probably okay. Thirty four to thirty five. Well, this was going like thirty seven. I mean, way fast, way fast. And so I put it down. I watched a video of how you change it. So first thing I set it, set my phone on with this app. They'll let you do it like three times and you have to buy it. So you got to, you got to you <laughs> can't <know>. go back. <laughs> so, so anyways, I figured out, watched a video. There's two little holes on the bottom. You got to poke your screwdriver up in there and turn a little screw to slow it down. So I got that fixed again. YouTube's awesome. You yeah, can do YouTube's anything awesome. on YouTube. What was my point? Oh, you were talking about how, yeah, they have to, something like the speed being off right. makes everything And if, off. so when you're dealing with, like they call heads, you know, mm-hmm. for layman's, they're basically the electronic interface between the tape and the music. So you have a record head, you have a play head, you have different. Erase head. Erase yeah. head. So those are in a 16 track. They're basically 16 individual tape heads that are stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. 
and that goes on generally on a two-inch tape. So the track width, if you were to get like a microscope and you could see the magnets on it, magnetic flux fields, mm -hmm. there's very little separation between tracks. So if you have a properly calibrated machine, that's great. If you have a machine that's out of calibration, what happens is you start pulling up two adjacent tracks, one track, you get bleed from the other yeah. track onto it. So if you have, let's say you have a, a snare on one, you have the singer on two, and you want to bring the singer up, you start bringing the singer up, and there's more and snare, the snare comes, comes up, up too. Yeah. So yeah. you had these guys that were engineers. Right. You know? That was what they had to work with, right? Is And that was just... That was state-of-the-art. That was state-of-the-art. And there's a gr another great YouTube channel, Professor Rock. He has some great interviews. Oh, yeah. I guess from um, Idaho. There's uh, uh, one that he did with Alan Parsons that where Alan Parsons is talking about dark side. And he talks about, so we talk about tape delay and we talked about, you know, running the loop out around. Well, they, they would often take one of the ways you could get reverb. It's not true reverb, but it sounds like reverb is as you're recording into the tape, you turn up your volume because as the head, the, the, basically, the space between your record head and your playhead, okay, your record head is hearing the playhead. And so as you turn up your input volume as you're talking, you get this echo effect, right? And we used to do that all the time because I thought it was really cool, but it's really a pretty crappy sound. But they would do tape delay similarly where they have the tape come out of one machine into another machine so you get this long delay and so when you talk about tape delays the early tape delays physically had a piece of tape right in a pedal or there's a, a big, big rack box, big like. box right and that's how they do it it yeah. was physical tape and they would have a it wasn't like a reel to reel right they had like a little like a little bin that sat on top mm -hmm. and you had a little lid on it echoplex was the brand i think mm -hmm. came out but you had this basically a certain length of tube or length of tape and you had a you could physically like with a, a lever you could separate the record and the playback head to increase the delay time right so but those things all i mean that you always had to have buy um new tape and replace them because it became so saturated it would, it would wear out yeah, yeah it would just wear out and i remember another thing with tape oh Oh, nightmare. I just had a terrible flashback. So working at a radio station, they would use cart tapes, cartridge tapes that yes. look like an eight track. They look like an eight track. They're a, they're a loop, right? So if you're running a, a, a 30 second commercial, you'd stick it on a 40 second cart. And so the way the carts work is you'd usually produce it on a reel to reel in the production room and then you'd record it onto a cart. And so then you got all your, all your 40, or your 30 second commercials are on 40 seconds. There's always a few extra seconds at the end because after the commercial would play, you know, in 10 seconds, it would queue up, stop at the beginning. And they had a chime on them. They had a, they had a, a sec tone, right? A sec tone that would trigger. If you had machines that did this, right? Once that sec tone, it's, you don't hear it. You don't hear it, but the machine picks it up. It's at a frequency you don't hear, but the cart machine, as one commercial plays, as it, you put a sec tone right at the very end, and then that triggers the next machine, right? right? So at one station I worked at, all carts, the music was on carts too. We didn't play, everything was on cart, every, which was really kind of nice. You had six cart machines. You'd load those babies up, and here's what it was really cool. In the toilet, in the bathroom, we had remote 
buttons in the stall. So you could load up all six of your cart machines. You could sit on the can for 25 minutes and, <laughs> and run your show. From, it was awesome. But, but my point about the carts is, and I did this once, you'd have to erase your carts before you could record oh, a new absolutely. one. That's... The bulk eraser, you have the little magnet thing you run across. We had a big one that was uh, about the size of a uh, – oh, they're thick, too. They just sat on a desk and you'd run them across the top? Oh, no, it was a big – it had a big, um, like a toroidal coil in it, and it okay. was big. But you didn't want to get your wristwatch by it. R- right. And so, you didn't want to get your pacemaker by well, it. Well, here's what happened. I was the stupid guy – I don't even remember how I did this. I, we had a little handheld degausser. Degausser. And I wound up like erasing a whole stack of our commercials. I went by and did, I can't even remember how it happened. And it wasn't like it didn't completely erase them, but it's like all these commercials would be talking and go, you know, so, and then like, everyone's like, what's going on? And we found out, well, Jeremy erased a bunch of the commercials. So I had to go in and redub them all from the master tape. So, okay. Those days are over, thank God. So we're not, we're not staying on topic. Yeah, and I I'm, know. I'm the guilty one. So just a couple things about this album that I think are really important. I don't think this is true, but there was a rumor at one time, this album was so in demand that there was supposedly a factory in England that all they did at this plant was press Dark Side of the Moon albums. They had I, I think a, I've heard that rumor. A factory too. completely dedicated to that for like a few years. That, that all they did in this one factory was make this print these albums. I don't know if it's true. Another thing, the whole Wizard of Oz thing. Yes. I, it's BS. It is absolutely BS, but it's fun. But it's fun, you know. So, so supposedly, and you can go on YouTube and watch, watch, and 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 supposedly it's synced up. You know, when I watch it, I'm like, it's not really that synced up. I don't know what the and there's there's different starting points where people like one is when she op- when Dorothy is in black and white and she opens the door and you start you start there. Okay, yeah. maybe you just got to start at the right place yeah. or whatever. But I watched it on YouTube and I'm like. Yeah, I don't see the big deal it's here. It's fun. It's just wacky. Yeah, I, it's just one of those wacky things. One of the things that's interesting is the the story of Claire Tory. And who's Claire? Claire Tory is the lady who sings on oh, Great yes. Gig in the Sky. <laughs> and I was gonna. In fact, maybe you can check this out here. So a, a couple interesting things. In fact, Alan Parsons was the one that recommended her because they wanted. For this great gig in the sky song, they wanted a female singer. And Alan Parsons says, okay, I know this lady, Claire Torrey. Let's get her in to do it. So she gets a call, and they don't even tell her. You know, she just just gets a call from the studio. Could you come in and sing on this? And she was said she was super busy and booked and says, the only time I could do it is like next Sunday night, a week from today or whatever. So they had her come in on a Sunday. She didn't even know who it was for. And then she finds out right the day she's going in that it's Pink Floyd. And, and remember, this is Pink Floyd was. They had a little bit of a little bit of. Yeah, but they weren't like huge. Right. And she said, to be honest, I wasn't really that big of a fan. But anyway, she goes in and uh, Alan Parsons says, you know, when I asked her to come in, I didn't realize that the band didn't have any words for her to sing. (laughs) They just wanted someone to come in. And that's what they told her. We've got this music. 
We want you to go out there and sing. Sing what? We don't know. No words. Just go out and sing to this. And so great gig in the sky is this beautiful kind of melancholy piano yeah, music. Sentimental. And sentimental. And so she goes out and she says she starts, you know, she's just making it up. You know, she's ad lib and she's singing, ooh, baby. Oh, yeah. And they say, yeah, they say, no, 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 no words. You can't use any words. So it's like, okay, you don't give me any lyrics. You can't say can't do any words. So what do I do? Well, she goes out and she does what she does on the album. Whoa, you know, she's just, and it's great. I mean, it's awesome. But here's what's really funny is you watch the interviews with the band members. This is, this is a, this is a, a people lesson, John. You watch the interviews with the band members and they talk about, we're all sitting back as she's out there and we're just blown away. We're like, this is unbelievable. This is, this, she said the only one that would talk to her was David Gilmore. He was the only one that gave her any type of, of direction or anything. But the guys are just going on about how awesome it sounded and it was great. And yet when you hear her talk about it, she says, you know, I sang it. I did my part. They had me do it twice. And then they were able to put together from the two, you know, to get the performance they wanted. But she said when they were done, she said, you know, they didn't say, great. That was awesome. That was wonderful. They're just like, okay, thank you. And she left and she thought, I'm never, that's not going to, they were just experimenting with, that was weird. You know, she's like, so she didn't think she, they were happy. She's like, did they like it? And it's, but to hear the members of the band, they're talking about how incredible it was and how, and, you know, uh, and it wasn't until a few months later that she sees there's a new Pink Floyd album and she, she looks at it and sees her name listed on this song, Great Gig in the Sky, because she said it didn't even have a name. When she was doing it, she had no idea what it was going to be called. So she bought it. And then, you know, it became the huge hit that, yeah. it, that it was. So here was my question. Maybe you found this. So they just paid her scale to come in and do it. You know, she was there for an hour. I don't know. What do you make for an hour if you're a scale studio? You know, $25. $25, whatever it was. You know, so that she was... went in. So, and I don't know if you found it there, but. Later, down the road, and maybe in the last 10, 15 years or so, they've paid her, they've gone back and paid her more money for that. I think it's, you know, part, partly because it's ad lib, so it would be technically an original creation. Oh, yeah. and maybe that, I don't know. But but I know she's gone back and got more. It didn't go to a trial or anything, but right. I think they did something to where she would get a, a little more money for it then yeah, well that's good yeah so but anyways that was kind of cool so and i probably should have brought this up earlier but and this this again i think goes back to roger waters being brilliant i mean he was brilliant he and this is just how he's wired different than a lot of other musicians you know nick mason talks about how that the time between metal and dark side is their best time right they were all getting along everything was going well and yet, and yet, who who thinks of this for an album? So Roger Waters decides, what are things that are really bad that really stress people out? Let's do an album about that, right? And that's that was his that was his thing. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to to delve into this darker stuff. And so, what is Dark Side of the Moon about? It's about it's about stress. 
It's about the pressures we have on us and them is kind of haves and have nots. It's about money. It's It's about about class. It's about war. Yeah. It's about all of these, all of these kind of dark death. You know, one of the things that Roger Waters talks about is a fear of flying. That was something that he, now this is interesting. Roger Waters dad was an air force pilot, British air force pilot and died in a plane crash when Roger Waters was like three or four or something. So that might be part of that too. But, but all of these things, pressures, that's what the album's about. Right. And I thought one of the interesting things was all these spoken parts that you hear, you know, the, in fact, <laughs> it took me years to figure out why they always had the explicit thing on dark side of the moon. I'm like, what are they talking about? Well, as the very first thing you hear as it fades up from the heartbeat at the beginning on speak to me as the guy drops the F bomb, oh. you know? Yeah. And you don't even hear, it's not even that loud, but that's why it's got the E rating on it. But one of the things they did is they took on index cards. They just wrote a bunch of random questions and just grabbed people that were in the studio. Maybe it was a roadie. Interesting. Maybe it was someone visiting the studio. They just put them in the sound booth with these random questions. Like one of the questions was, when was the last time you were violent? Interesting. Were you, were you in the right? Are you afraid of dying? You know, one of the questions was, what do you think of the album title? dark side of the moon, right? So all these random questions and they just, so all these speaking parts, that was just people in the, in the control rooms or in the recording booth answering these questions. And one of the things that was interesting is Paul McCartney was there and they had Paul McCartney go in and answer these questions, but they didn't use any of his because uh, according to Roger Waters, he was, trying to be too clever, right? He was trying to be funny instead of just answering the questions, right? I thought that was kind of interesting. But just the foresight of Roger Waters, just thinking of doing this, he's just a very creative guy. So yeah. I've kind of I've kind of had a different opinion of, of Roger Waters the more I get into this. I mean, if you album. look at videos, video footage from the late 70s, 80s, 90s, those Roger Waters and um, David Gilmore. David, yeah, they have nothing nice to say about each other. Oh no, people are like, hey, when are you getting back together? They're, never. They're basically like stick in the middle. We're never going to get back yeah. together. It's <laughs> never going to happen. Stop yeah. asking. We hate each other. We're not going to do it. Right. I mean, but that's that's the the view that I came away with is like Pink Floyd. That that time is over. It'll never be again. Right. So recently, I think about a year ago. Um, David Gilmore sold all his guitars. I saw that. Yeah. And so the that the Black Strat, which mm-hmm. was I think one of the highest paint- Yeah, like it was like a serial number 2 or something crazy. So yeah. He had some really low serial numbers. But that, the one that looks like this one on my wall up uh-huh. here. But uh that was, it was I mean I was interested to see how much that one went for. Yeah. I'm not sure how much it did. I could just check it, but I kind of at that moment kind of realized that Pink Floyd is not going to be Pink Floyd. It's the only thing that we're going to have from Pink Floyd in the future is just basically repackaged, repackaged yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's, two, it's sad to think about, you well, know? Yeah. Cause Nick, Nick and Richard are both dead, right? right. So two of the guys are gone. And, and, and when I look at Pink Floyd, you got three periods, right? You got the Sid Barrett, right? And that's the early days, the early, 
uh, and and Sid, psychedelic. Yeah, and Sid Barrett's a whole nother sad yeah. story that we could talk about. Who who basically fried fried his brain right on, on drugs on psychedelics. Yeah. In fact, on Wish You Were Here, as they were recording it, he came and visited them. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. And no one recognized him. Because he'd lost all of his hair. He'd lost all of his hair and he'd gained a lot of weight. Yeah. And they didn't even know who it was until finally someone told him and they realized. But but he was out of it. I mean, he just, it's a really sad story because the first few years he was he was the guy. Yeah. He wrote all the songs. He was talented. He was the good looking one. I mean, he was the star. And then they bring David was actually friends of Sid's. So they all knew each other, and, and David was the natural choice. They bring David in, and one of the things that's really sad, and they talk about this, they all felt some guilt about Sid. They all did. And they got to the point where they just wouldn't tell Sid <laughs> that they had a gig. Oh. They, they just would go play it without him, you know? Kind of like you guys would do to me in the band, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but but it was but it was to the point where when Sid would play it again, he was, he was out of it. I mean, he would be doing something completely different to where they couldn't perform with him. And then they bring, you know, David in. But my whole point was there was the Sid period and then the Roger period. And the Roger period is definitely the landmark, the most popular period. And then, you know, they had the, they did the final cut in like 84, which was basically a Roger Waters album. You know, that was a contractual thing. They did that. And then so Roger Waters leaves and he assumes Pink Floyd is done. That's the end of Pink Floyd. Well, then in 87, here comes a new Pink Floyd album. He's like, wait, was that, wait, wait, you which can't. one was that? That's the one with the momentary, momentary lapse of reason, oh, right? Yeah. Wasn't that 87? I think I it was think, 87. Yeah. That had, you know, Learn, learn to fly, and all those. It's a great album. Then you had Pulse. Pulse. So talking about packaging, they yeah. had a the flashing. They had a little flashing red LED. <laughs> I remember seeing those in the store. In the store. So you yeah. had you bought this little. It was kind of cool. How long did they last? I don't Pulse think they lasted very long. For, they couldn't they had have button cell batteries. Does anyone and, still have a Pulse uh, that's CD still flashing, that's still flashing thirty years later? But I remember that. But Roger even tried to stop them. From using from using Pink Floyd, right. but he lost. And he's even said he says, you know, uh, you know, I I thought Pink Floyd couldn't go on without me, but apparently they could. <laughs> they, and they, you know, they had a degree of success. But I think, let's be honest, right? It's Dark Side. It's Wish You Were Here. It's the Wall. It's the Wall. That's that's what people think of, and that's what people want to hear with Pink Floyd. So yeah, I mean, David Gilmour kind of took it. You know, from from the Roger period, had some success, but I think we all agree that it's it's those Roger Waters periods that right. where it was the best. And I think as they've gotten older, again, there's only two left, David and and Roger. You know, I, I don't know that they're best buddies, but I think they've. Have they buried the hatchet? I don't know. I mean, I don't think, like you said, I don't think they'll ever really. I don't think they want to hang out. Do anything? No. See, I think, I think that's that's a lot of expectation that fans have. Fans have this idea that the Beatles are going to get back together. <laughs> yeah. You know, Yoko Ono's going to go away. Whatever. You know, but it's just not. It's not going to happen. Usually, you have these bands that 
at least the ones that keep touring are they they play the oldies and they have new young guns come in and and play the parts of the old guys. Right. You know? Right. So and here's another little rabbit trail because we haven't gotten on enough. So I saw a thing on YouTube about Don Dawkin, right? Rockin' with Dawkin. Rockin' with Dawkin. So I don't know if you're aware of this, but Dawkin, they've, they've been touring for the last three or four years. Where? Different, just all around. They got paid big money about three years ago to go to Japan and do a, a oh, few shows. I guess they are big in Japan. But here's the problem. Don Dawkin sounds terrible. Terrible. He can't sing. He, he can't sing he, anymore. Is he Vince Neil terrible? He is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I think I did see that. Yeah. And so here's my question. It's an ethical question. <laughs> an ethical question. If people are still willing to pay to go see... Okay, so, so in Dawkins' case, sometimes George Lynch will actually come out and play, you know, and I think Jeff Pilson sometimes will play, but normally it's all different guys. He's got his own band that he calls Dawkins. He wears that little bolero hat, too. He wears he, he wears like a hat, and he like wears a long trench coat, and I feel bad for the guy. He had cancer. I mean, he's had some health problems, but he can't sing anymore. Okay, he's not a bad guy. He just can't sing. I think he had a very articulate voice. He did have a very articulate voice. He had a good, he had a good voice. He had a good voice. I mean, a lot of those hair metal guys, they just weren't good singers. Yeah, he was a good singer. He was a. In fact, a lot of people don't know this. Klaus Mina on the Klaus. Blackout album, he lost his voice. They almost thought he was done. And a lot of what you hear on Blackout is Don Dokken. Mm. So Klaus is in singing the lead vocals on songs, but. Background vocal. There's a lot of Don Dawkin on that album, but anyways, he can't sing. So, and I and the debate on the interwebs, right? Is dude, you gotta you you gotta stop. You gotta stop. Stop doing it. So, is it fair for us to tell these guys they need to stop? I mean, if this is their livelihood, this is how they make their money. Who are we to tell Don Dawkin he can't go out and perform? <sighs> is that right? Is that fair? Because Kiss, you say the same thing about Kiss, right? Paul Stanley hasn't, he's never was a great never singer, is. but he can't sing. Okay, he's done. He's done singing. But, uh, but you have like Queen, right? Queen made their own cover band but, yeah. with Mark Martella, a Canadian guy. Uh -huh. Fantastic singer. They did that for a few years. Well, and Adam Lambert. Adam yeah, Lambert. Adam Lambert. Was, so. I guess if everyone knows, right? And Eddie Trunk will go on this whole thing. His his deal is lip syncing, right? Oh, I hate that. Is and I do too. His deal is they should have disclaimers. They should they should let people know, hey, that much of this show will be lip syncing. It won't, you know. The flip side of that is people that go see Kiss, they don't care. They're yeah. going for the bombast. They're going to see it's nostalgia, right? But it, it's a tough call. Vince Neil, Don Dawkin. When you can't sing, you you hope that someone will pull them aside <laughs> and say, "Dude, don't do this." But if that's how you make your money, that's that's a moral yeah. dilemma. You know, I go to more concerts than you do. Yeah, and uh, I partake of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And if you get the right amount of alcohol, <laughs> you don't notice. <laughs> You're having a good time. Yeah, they sound just like the record. No, yeah. you, I mean, I, I'll never get that drunk, mm. but, you know, 
I think that's the only thing we can really hold on to is live yeah. performance. Yeah. It is. And and I've been to some big concerts and uh you're so far away from them. And I've been to like big stadium shows like mm-hmm. U two and I'm gonna brag, 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 uh Coldplay and and uh, the Who, those kind of things. But some of these concerts you go to are like a little smaller venue, there is no way that they can sing and dance the way they're doing it. There's yeah. no physical way that you could be running around stage and not panting like a horse. Yeah. They've got vocal assist going got on. Vocal so assist that. going on. And I feel cheated. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the stuff, I mean, sometimes you go to concerts and it sounds exactly like the record mm-hmm. because they're they're miming to a backing track. Yeah. And some of the bands that I've I've gone to, it's like, wow, they sound just like the recording. They sound exactly like the recording. Yeah. And Guess it's, what? It's, it's the recording. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, you know, I shelled out 200 bucks to see a live yeah. show and they're basically pantomiming. And and that's why I see Eddie Trunk's point is, is if you're going to do that, people should know, right? If you're going to do that, people should know. And, and I guess I see his point. There's still some old guys, right? I mean, no one at 70 can sing like they could when they were 30. Ooh. But you know what? Sammy Hagar still sounds pretty good. Robin Zander from Cheap Trick oh, yeah, still sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. They, I mean, they alter some things, you know, but you know who still sounds really good? He looks like crap, but he sounds Who's the guy that? from Loverboy. Really? I've seen them like five times, and they sound awesome. They just don't look that great, right? But... I just thought about that when we talked about, you know, Gilmore's in his 70s, Roger Waters in his he 70s. Sold all, he sold his magic. Sold He's, sold his guitars, right? Like this song was, you know, this guitar was used on this track. And, mm. and you're just like, well, this, he's, he's letting go of things. And, and doesn't that, I've mentioned this so many times, doesn't that make you feel old when your heroes are selling their guitars, right? Yeah. And they're retiring. And and this has happened a lot over the last year. Stevie Nicks did it. Neil Young did it. Elton John. I think a lot of these people have sold their whole yeah. publishing. And they'll put it on Reverb. Yeah. Reverb is a, a like an eBay just for musical equipment. But mm-hmm. they'll, you, you'll see bands that sell. Oh, selling all, their gear. They're yeah. selling all their gear, which means that. They're they, done. They're done. You know? Yeah. So that, that will be a debate that continues to go on. And And you said it earlier. Gosh, we sound like a bunch of grumpy old men. But the music that we grew up with, the music industry was different. You shared that list, the top 10 albums. The newest one was from 1997. Right. Because the music, people don't buy albums anymore. People don't listen to albums. They don't, I mean. And that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, there was a lot of magic in listening to radio. Totally. I mean, I would listen to pop and I'd be like, you a lot of times they wouldn't tell you who the artist was at the beginning or the end. Yeah. So you had to listen to it multiple times to figure out to see it, like who was singing the song. And yeah. it was kind of like you were engaged in listening, but and, and that's and gone. It's now. funny. You mentioned that because I can remember a lot. I can't think of a song at the moment, but there'd be lots of times just to that point, you'd hear songs on the radio 10 or 20 times and think it was someone else. Right. Oh, that's that new uh, whatever. And then it wasn't until they said, this is so-and-so. Oh, I had no idea. But kids don't know how good they got it, right? Oh, yeah. I say that. But I think it was better back then, actually. I, I'm i going to look on the bright side. Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it, it's like it's democrat. I mean, social media has democratized media. The home studio revolution oh, has totally. changed everything. Totally. Totally. 
Billie Eilish. Billie right? Eilish. Billie Eilish and her brother, can't remember his name, he's a genius. They produced that platinum album in their bedroom. Yes. That could not have happened in the 70s. No. So, yeah, yeah that's a very good point. The barriers of entry are lower, right? More people can get into it. However, the opportunity to make money is a lot lower. It's lower than it's ever been, yeah. I think. So, so, But there's nothing stopping me and John. You and I could make a platinum. All we need is talent. You know, if oh, we, man. Yeah. <laughs> if any of our listeners know of someone with some extra talent, they yeah, can give us this on over. some to That's cool. Okay, so final thoughts. Okay. On dark side of the moon. We've been all over the place, but it's been a good conversation. I mean, it's the first time we've been together in oh, like two yeah, months, and yes. we've gone through some stuff we need to share. Totally. So your final thoughts on dark side of the moon. I think dark side of the moon was kind of like a pinnacle for the studio as an art form. Mm. The pen, I mean, you know, the wall is great too, but I think that was like ultimately the height of what, you know, what could be accomplished in a studio. Mm. And, uh, and I think it should be list. I think, <laughs> I think it should be listened to by every human on the face of the earth once a year, front to back. I think at least one time, everyone should listen to it front to back. Yes. I agree. I agree. With headphones, with good quality with headphones. headphones. Totally. But you know, what's fun to do. You can get stereo speakers really cheap. If oh, yeah. you look, you know, go to Goodwill, go to some, seriously, I've got some nice. So I've got two massive, st two sets of massive stereo speakers. So I got one set and then I got them stacked up on the top. I will go mm -hmm. downstairs in my kind of a little TV room. I'll put, I love the, I love the vinyl, right? And I will lay on the floor with my head right in between the speakers. And I don't know, there's just something about that. It's a pain that you got. The older I get, the more of a pain it is. You got to get up and turn the record over. That sucks. But it's an experience. That's right. part of the experience. You pull that record out. You set it down. And like you, I think it's. I think it's a benchmark. It's the pinnacle. It's the pinnacle. It is the pinnacle. And one thing, watching these Tim Pierce videos today, I just wrote some some notes down here. And this is stuff that we don't really think about. Uh, unless you really nerd out on this idea of production, there's so much that goes into the sound that's more than just the people playing, right? And he used the he used the term. He was talking to this can't remember who he's talking to, but they're talking about how they wanted to make sure they recorded the orchestra in the same room where they recorded everything else. And the the term he used is, "We wanted to make sure the rooms were aligned." And see, when you're talking about rooms being aligned, you're talking about ambience, right? You're talking about the room sound. And this is nuanced stuff that you don't think about, about how drums sound. Drums are a perfect example, right? You don't think about how much the room influences the drum sound. The, the way you place the mics, all these different things that go into that sound. And so when you're, when you're talking about an album like Dark Side... It's an art form. It is an art form. And you use the word, they were engineers, these guys that that had to do all this stuff, whether it's physically tweaking with the equipment. But but when you talk about where you place the mics, 
where you, you know, the sound of an actual room and the materials in the room, there's so much that goes yeah. into it that it's really an art form. And, and the, the little things, the voices you hear, the sound effects, the little sequencer things. I have, to, I have to tell you one funny thing. So the other night, I've listened to Dark Side on headphones with my little earbuds in, through the stereo in the car. So I'm laying in bed. I've got my little earbuds in, and I'm listening to, oh, it's the beginning of uh, Great Gig in the Sky. The piano's playing, and... When you hear things with headphones, you hear things you never heard before. You know, yes. you notice things. And so I don't know if you've ever noticed at the beginning of Great Gig in the Sky, I hear someone snoring. There's like someone snoring. And I'm like, this is crazy. I've listened to this a hundred times. I've never heard that. Yeah. And then I finally realized it's my wife snoring. <laughs> but I thought, I thought I was hearing it on the recording. And in a weird sort of way, it totally would have fit. Right. Yeah. Great gig in the sky. You're going to sleep, you know, anyways. So that's, that's something I really noticed too, is like car stereos and CD players and CD players anymore, but they all have a different frequency response. And sometimes yeah. you'll hear parts of the song that you've heard a hundred times and you listen on a, on a new system Divi or something. Yeah. And you'll, something will stand out to you. I love that. Here's something here's, sorry, this show will never end. This show will never here's, end. here's one thing that I've noticed about uh, young younger people. So I'm playing uh, over with my brother and a friend of his, just jamming, right? And this this friend of Jeff's has a son who's a really good guitar player. He's 18, 19 years old, but really good. He's one of these kids that can sit down, learn songs note for note in his bedroom, work them all out. And his guitar sound is just not good. It's oh, yeah. very, it's very tinny and very, it's just not a good sound. I'm like, why does he have it sound like? It? Well, I realize what it is. Kids these days, in our day, big old stereo. You big want old. that? Well, my girls, I notice they listen on little tiny USB speakers or on their earbuds or earbuds. just, just through their phone. Yeah. So they're used to hearing this small tinny sound. And this kid, I think he's used to that sound. Yeah. And so to him, that's what a guitar sounds like. You know, I just thought that was interesting. Interesting. So, John, it's been great. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, we, thank you for hanging in with us. The website, classicguitarrock.com. You can email us via the website or at classicguitarrock at mail.com. You can email us. You can follow us on Twitter. And what else was I going to say? Oh, Patreon. You Patreon, can, you can yeah. support us on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. And we're super excited to have you join us. We're excited that the show continues to, to grow, and we appreciate that very much. Yeah, thank you very much I, for sticking with us. For sure. We really appreciate it. All right. We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Oh, sweetly. Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We're not ordinary people. <laughs> We're morons. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast.